Hi, welcome back to another episode of Schoolhouse Rocks uh, podcast. We are here today to talk about math classrooms and math instruction. So before we get too far into the conversation, I'm going to invite everyone who's here with me today to introduce themselves and tell you what their role is in our school district. And I am really thankful to be joined by such a wide variety of guests today. So let's go around the table. Hi, I'm Jeff Fashina. I'm the supervisor of mathematics, business and family consumer sciences for grades 7 through 12. I'm Michaela, and I'm a student here at EMS. I'm Roy, and I'm a student here at EMS. Hi, I'm Melissa Jamison, and I'm a seventh grade math teacher here at EMS. Hi, I'm Christine Gallo, and I am also a seventh uh, grade teacher at EMS teaching math. Hey, I'm Mike Kovach. I teach seventh and eighth grade math special ed at Eisenhower. Hi, I'm Kylie Richardson, and I teach seventh grade math. And I'm Kristen Icabino. I teach algebra and intro to algebra. Welcome to Schoolhouse Rocks. It's who we are. All right, so part of the reason I'm really excited to have this conversation, besides the fact that I know that you all are doing amazing work in your classrooms, um, is that too frequently, and we've done previous episodes on this, the perception of math classrooms is not one that really um, invites unbridled joy. And that's really disappointing, I think, for everyone in this room because all of us are math educators or once were, and our students really enjoy being a part of these classrooms. And so what I hope to accomplish today is for us to engage in a conversation about how have we worked here in the district to shift that philosophy or that perception. Um, too, too frequently, students are taught that they are either not, not able to be successful in math or that they're not quote unquote the math person. Now we've had a previous conversation, Melissa, I believe you there, you were there, Jeff, you were there, um, about how do we debunk that idea of a math person, that idea that only certain people can be successful with math in their life. Um, and that's kind of the plan of action for you. So we talked about that previously. And so what I really want to get into today is more of the how, because you all have collectively been doing a ton of work um, particularly as you've been working to implement the text building thinking classrooms. We're going to talk more about that book, um, but certainly not easy work because you're really doing three things simultaneously as educators that I'm, I'm confident you don't get the credit for. One, you're working to ensure that students have a positive self-image about themselves as math students and future um, interactors with math. Right, you're, secondly, you're working to design a learning sequence that achieves the standards that you're required to work on. But three, and probably most important in my opinion, is you're working to drive excitement surrounding math instruction. Um, how do students engage productively with math learning? How do they see themselves as potentially successful in that space? And more, most importantly of all, how do they recognize that the things they are learning in the classroom connect to their future life, future opportunities for professions, as well as it's just usable in the real world. So let's talk about building thinking classrooms. I'm going to start with you, Jeff, because I know this is something that you've really worked hard to introduce into the de uh, secondary department, and it's really taking off with a bang here. And so let's talk about that. Yeah, so a couple of years ago, I read through the book, Building Thinking Classrooms, uh, especially during the COVID pandemic, <clears throat> and learning about uh, the techniques and strategies behind it. And there's 14 different strategies in the book. They're amazing. Uh, and the beginning strategies really just talk about how the classroom setup becomes uh, a little bit different from what the typical math classroom might look like. And, you know, different strategies to get the kids involved, get the kids thinking, working with one another. Uh, earlier this year, we had a training with Dr. Eric Milo, college professor at Rowan University, uh, who's been doing a lot of work around the country for math education and has really also uh, helped support the thoughts and processes behind the book. 
Um, so once we had that training, it was almost like the next day we were up and running as far as certain practices and going forward with it. So I want to invite the teachers at this point to talk about their experiences, how they've come across uh, using built-in thinking classrooms and what they've seen in the classroom. Yeah, so, I mean, I feel like this year we really kind of took a chance and really changed how math is taught in the classroom. Um, I know when I went to school, which not too long ago, um, but it was, you sit down, you take notes, you do a worksheet with the teacher, you do a worksheet by yourself, then you go home and you do 20 problems for homework. And as the times change just in the world, math needs to change. School needs to change. The way kids learn need to change. Sitting down and watching someone instruct you and then being able to do it with people then by yourself it becomes redundant, it becomes boring, um, to be honest. So I feel like building things in classrooms really gave us the platform and more of an idea of how can we get students excited about math, how can we get them up and moving. Um, and personally for me, there are some rules I follow from it, but I've kind of made my own hybrid and I think we all have. And I think the main takeaway I have from it and what's worked for my classroom is just kids up and moving. They're never really sitting down for more than maybe 10 minutes at a time. My students are here, so they can hold me accountable for that statement later. But um, really standing up, moving around, talking to each other. Um, they're in random groups, so they're all kind of helping each other. Everyone's at different levels. Um, and the biggest thing that I've seen that I feel like has really transformed my classroom is that instead of me telling them something new and giving them notes, they're discovering it on their own, which is it's mind-blowing. Um, and I really think things I've taken away is you need to really kind of trust the process and trust that these kids are capable and they're able and they're willing to do it if we give them the opportunity to do so. Um, and so often I think that we kind of, you know, we say, oh, this is going to be really hard for them to understand. But in reality, if you give them the chance, they do a really nice job of uncovering and helping each other uncover what I was just going to tell them in the first place. All right, so I'm, I'm furiously writing notes here, so I don't even know, feel free anybody to jump in on this, but one of the things I just heard you say that is the most profound for me, which I think too frequently, um, as educators, we lose in the sauce while we're working so hard to design classroom experiences, assessments, grade papers, communicate with parents, the litany of responsibilities that accompany being an educator in the 21st century, which is trust students, because they can do amazing things if we really give them the space to do that, um, but I recognize that that's an uncomfortable space for a lot of teachers to be in. And if I reflect on my practice from when I was in the classroom, there's no chance I would have been able to do that. Um, and so I commend you all for taking that leap and trusting the students to be owners of their learning and the fact that their ability to discover and get to the place where you would have done anyway, where you would have gotten them as the teacher anyhow, is something that can happen. So let's talk about that in, in particular. How do you take that leap? How have any of you taken that leap? Um, I mean, it sounds crazy that I'm asking you, how do you trust students, right? But I'm not asking you, how do you trust them as humans? I'm asking them, how do you trust them to direct the learning experience? Because that's one of the hardest things for teachers to do, because we all feel really equipped to own it, right? How do we let the kids own it, right? That's really hard. So let's talk about that before we get into more specific things. But I got, you gave me plenty to talk about there, the two of you to jump off. So let's go there. Um, I would say that in, in this exploration with building thinking classroom that, you know, it's new to teachers and students. So in the beginning, there's going to be hurdles and bumps that, you know, nobody anticipates. So it's kind of one of those things that's an ever flowing kind of work it out in each class. So when students are up at their vertical boards and they've been selected to be in their random groups, sometimes there's certain students that take ownership and want to kind of move through the problems at their own pace. But they all have one marker between their groups. They're usually in groups of three 
randomized and they may not know each other. So we've in the beginning tried to foster that communication between the students and say, hey, if you are somebody who's usually a leader, you might have to just take a step back and be a leader in a different role. Rather than writing it on the board, you might be able to, you know, explain to another student and say, hey, let's go through this method in there. So I think students are being able to see that they have a voice in it. They're being able to see that they can try without penalty. And uh, through this as well, I know some of the teachers in here have had sentence starters or maybe how they are not able to communicate with students. So students can be referred to that at their vertical surfaces as well and kind of just explore the problems as they go through. I think the thin slicing works really well because it starts with um, activity or questions that they know. So it starts with questions that they know and it guides them to then some of those harder questions. So it's something that they can refer back to with the earlier task cards that they were doing and then utilize that information to complete the harder tasks. For example, distributive property equations. They're able to do expressions with distributive property and then take that information and put it into an equation problem. All right, so I just, before we go, Mike, I don't wanna jump in and maybe you just wanna answer this as you're going because you were ready to jump there. You use some language there, Kylie, that I'm not sure people who are listening who are not in this conversation will understand. You, you mentioned thin slicing, you mentioned task cards. So let's explain what those things are. I don't know, you know, everyone here I know is capable of doing that because this is the work you're doing. So let's let's just define very quickly what those things are so anyone who's listening who is unfamiliar would know. Thin slicing is a series of cards, say one through 20, and they're done through mild, medium, and spicy tasks. Usually one through five are those mild tasks where the students are already have that previous information. Then the medium starts going into the new stuff that you're doing, and then the spicy tasks go into a few more of the challenging questions. Now, to bounce off that, Kylie, I look at things very much through the special education lens because I teach special education. And while I teach in-class resource, a lot of my students with disabilities are higher functioning and they are more above some of the other students with disabilities. One big challenge that I've found a lot of them have these days is that when you give them a lot of problems in a sequence, they just shut down. They won't work through a lot of problems, even if they're really simple problems. So I found that the thin slicing really works well for them because you're giving them one problem at a time. So they're very easily satiated with that. You give them one problem, they solve it, they feel that sense of accomplishment, and they're willing to move on past that further. And I've found that that works substantially better than any worksheet, any test that you can give a kid is when you give them that one problem at a time, they have that easy fix of, I just did it, I completed it, it was easy, let's move on to the next one. They're not held back by the overwhelming amount of problems that you give them, even if it's 10 to 20 on a sheet. So looking at it through a special ed lens, I've found that this works incredibly well in the classroom, better than anything else I've ever tried in the past. I think also because the grouping of students is randomized, it gives students the opportunity to sometimes be a leader for their group. Other times maybe they take a step back because they're not as comfortable with the material. So it just adds to the comfort and the different levels of success that they can have, uh, which I also think is important. Right, so I've, I've heard some important things and it's a really great um, segue to our students is uh, what I'm hearing you guys saying is that this format really allows you to structure opportunities and experiences where students have the ability to feel confident and comfortable scaffolding through 
um, experiences where they achieve success, right? They build their own feeling of success. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting and it was mentioned earlier was kid, students are up and moving, they're working together, they're talking about math. And I just want to clarify, you know, frequently we define engagement in education as kids up doing things. And that's not, I don't want us to um, convolute that situation. Engagement is really, and this isn't my sentiment. This is something I heard someone say once upon a time. I can't give them credit because I don't remember who, but I can't take credit for this either. Engagement is about minds on. It's not about bodies on, right? Just because kids are up and moving, they could be doing a lot of things that are unproductive or not directed towards learning. So don't, let's not mix up the fact that students are moving and working together as that's engagement. The engagement is that scaffolding through the task cards, through thin slicing, through other strategies that you are using collectively as professionals to help them feel that they can be successful and build their challenge in a direction that in a way that they can self-direct. So I, I'm really interested, Roy and Michaela, in your guys' thoughts. So as the students, oftentimes teachers prepare things. And I remember doing this as a teacher. You're like, this is going to be awesome. And then you look out at a sea of faces that are confused, not buying what you're selling, uninterested. And it's hard to build that connection because we don't often involve students in a conversation like this. So thank you for joining us. Tell us your perception of what's your classroom experience. How does it maybe differ from prior experiences, right? So are the strategies that your teachers are using that they're talking about, are they working? Are they helping you feel successful? Um, let's talk about that from a student's lens. Um, well, I feel that Miss Jameson, she does like a good job at like she'll like explain something and she'll give us like practice problems to like um, do with them and we'll like work through them as like a group and then she'll like show it on the board to see if we got the right answer and if we got it wrong, she'll like explain how to do it correctly and then after that, she'll usually give us like a worksheet or we'll go in groups and we'll work together on more like advanced problems. So when you're working, what's the conversation with your classmates look like? Because I, if Ms. Jamison is giving you the freedom to work without her directly, or and in any of these classrooms, the teachers are doing that, how, as a student, do you guys stay focused on that conversation? How do you agree and disagree about math? How do you continue an intellectual mathematical conversation without getting off task, without you know um, doing something else? We'll usually like um, solve the problem first and then we'll all check our answers. And if someone got it wrong, we'll explain how we did it to them. And then they'll try to redo it again. And if they get it right, they get it right. And if they get it wrong, we'll try to explain it to them more. Okay. All right, Roy, tell me your thoughts, man. Um, yeah, as Michaela is saying, I think Ms. Jamison does an amazing job at explaining everything. And if anyone's confused, there's a lot of, since we're doing groups, um, they can just explain it to them, and if they're still confused, Ms. Jamison's always there. So I think uh, what we do in the classroom is, like, it's way better than working on a worksheet. I'd rather do thin slicing any other day instead of doing a worksheet because they're usually just really boring. All right, so... Can you, and this is a hard question, I'm putting you on the spot. Can you describe that? What's the difference from a, from a student standpoint, right? Like, as, as I said before, I remember teaching, I remember designing math lessons that I thought were awesome. Uh, and in reflection, they were awesome to me because I was really invested in math. I really enjoyed math. I was probably unintentionally taught once upon a time that I was, you know, I'm doing air quotes here, a math person. Um, and so I designed lessons probably for that student without realizing it, right? That, that hypothetical math student. Um, 
So how does the format that you're experiencing now maybe differ from your prior experience that is helping you feel supported, right? The fact that you even want to be a part of this conversation suggests to me that you're having a really positive experience. How do you, what are the, what are the comparative differences there in your ability to be, feel successful, right? What has she done to help you feel successful with this format? When you look at a worksheet and you see that one question might be tough, you like, you don't, you don't want to keep working on the rest of it because you feel like you're going to stay there for like for a while and it's, you, you get overwhelmed with so many questions. And if you get one wrong, you know, you have 19 more questions to work on and you, you, you don't feel like um, you don't feel motivated to keep working on them. But if you do thin slicing, you, you're looking at one question at a time. And even if you get it wrong, you're just looking at one question. So you're not thinking about everything else, you know. Okay, so Michaela, I'm going to use what Roy just said and come back to you. Um, let's describe that because we talked about thin slicing before when Ms. Richardson described it as kind of a sequence of questions. Are those different? Is it, how is what you're doing? Here's a better question. How is what you're doing different than if we just took a worksheet and cut it up and gave it to you one problem at a time, right? Because I know that's not what thin slicing is. So let's describe the difference for anyone who's unfamiliar because that's not what the teachers are doing. They're not just taking that worksheet that was once 20 questions and cutting it up into 20 separate slips of paper. What does a thin sliced problem look like? How does it, is it, is it 20 different problems? So like the thin slicing, it has like easier problems and then they get like progressively harder. So you like start easy and you get like you work your way up with like a worksheet. Sometimes they'll all be like around the same level of like toughness. So say they're the first one's tough, they might all be tough. And then you like just have to like keep like doing hard problems. But with the thin slicing, you can start with like easier problems. And then as you get better at them, work your way up. So from the training that we've done and the research that we have with the thin slicing, it's a sequential order of tasks. Um, and like Michaela was saying, you know, it starts very easy and kind of builds its way up. The idea is you want to start with that prerequisite knowledge, right? Get a win for people going, um, get some momentum going down the road. And then as you go through the sequential tasks, eventually you're starting to develop new mathematical ideas. Um, and in the task cards that I've seen, maybe some hints are out there, maybe some note cards are out there. Hey, this is just a discussion at this point. Um, but it's not just like we do a bunch of problems and we expect learning to happen and snap everything's over. There's consolidation afterwards, right? That's our note taking process, our note making process. I like to kind of call it, um, where we're really putting together the main ideas that we've learned in the lesson at that point. And there's also the assessment piece at the end of it, right? When we hear assessment, our minds immediately go to tests and quizzes, but it's not about that. It's about what are we able to take away from this, uh, process, right? And then we could check for understanding at that point and inform our instruction for the next day and the day after that and so on. And where do we need to remediate? Where do we need to practice some more? And where do we need to extend as well? For the check your understanding at the end of the day, it actually directs what you're doing into the next day. So I've been able to use that check your understanding process with just three questions. So the score that the students get on those three questions, um, allows me to create the lesson for the next day and kind of group the students and provide specific small group instruction to those students the next day to see, okay, who needs to be challenged a little bit more, who's on the level and just needs a little bit more practice and who's struggling at that point. Yeah, the check-ins really just hold the students accountable because 
as much as these two, I mean, I brought them here because they've done such a good job with this and they're really striving as leaders um, day in and day out in thin slicing. There are those kids who do stay in the background. Um, and it is like Christina said before, a learning curve um, of how to hold yourself accountable because you take a couple check-ins and you're not getting the score you want to get. You have to know, all right, now, even though my whole team has got this medium question correct, I need to slow it down. I need to ask them, what can I do? How can I get that correct? Because I know on my three-question check-in, I'm not going to be able to do this on my own independently. Um, and that's different for different students with every single topic we do. Some kids thrive with others, and that's why I love having them work together. But um, the main thing, and I kind of took it from what these guys were saying next to me, my students here, um, the kids are having fun. There's so much more opportunity for them to be laughing, working through math, and it doesn't need to sound like it's just waiting for me to give the next instruction. Um, they're moving around at different paces. I mean, these guys can attest to it. We played a game with it one day, and there were they were it was crazy in our room, right? They were running around stealing presents from each other if they got a question correct. And they were trying the hardest equations I have ever given seventh grade students. I was shocked to see how hard they were trying just to steal a present from under a tree, which is just one of the games we kind of incorporate with thin slicing. But the things and the answers they were coming up with that if I were to give that, like Roy said, on a worksheet, I think half our class would probably be like, yeah, I'm not doing that. Um, so I feel like the thin slicing, I was just like, wow, this is unbelievable. It's the day before winter break and I'm getting this much productivity out of my kids. I'm like, this is crazy. Um, and this is definitely something that has reinvigorated me as a teacher to keep going, even though it is uncomfortable and different. Um, so even though it's uncomfortable and different, I think it's important to take that risk because it's truly transformed the way that I teach math this year. And I can truly tell you, my kids will never do like a worksheet sitting down in the future. It'll always be at least standing, even if I don't kind of fully commit to the thin slice for that lesson. So I, I really like the things that you all have just said. So I want to throw one more thought out there as we bring this to a close. And I would invite you all to kind of jump in and give last thoughts here. Um, is I'm really excited to hear, and Mike, you kind of got this ball rolling, but others have touched on it, about the idea of students having the ability in this format to work at their own pace. I think that if I reflected on my practice, that was one of my biggest deficiencies as a teacher, one of many uh, of my deficiencies as a teacher was I sort of maybe intentionally slash unintentionally, I, I don't know because I can't go back there, forced the students to work at my pace. And the, the, the real flaw in that thinking was, I was a math teacher, right? Like if I wasn't comfortable with the math, we were really in trouble. And I think that as, a, a, as a, an expert in something, it's really hard to not assume everyone has either the desire or capacity to work at your level. And that's one of the things that makes teachers so special is we generally have that, you know, I'm being I'm dem a little vulnerability here. I don't know if I had that as a teacher. I only do now after reflecting on my own practice for so long. But I'm, I'm really troubled by something I heard you just say, um, Melissa, which is that students are having fun in your classroom. Um, <laughs> so let's talk about how this process has introduced the idea of fun. I love that. I'm joking about it, of course. Um, I think we, we uh, you know, just a business, education as an industry, forget that we're our you know, greatest asset are the children, are the students, and we all want to have fun. Um, I'm hearing you guys say that we have shifted the needle away from typical boring style instruction. That word was used a couple of times. That it's not boring. We're allowing students to 
build their own success. It's limiting frustrations, right? Like I'm hearing a lot of things that we would hope as district leadership and as educators that we're doing for kids. And so I'm hearing it in action here. I'm hearing it from students and teachers. I'm hearing it from the supervisor. So let's kind of wrap up on thoughts about that is how have we been able to build those fun elements in? How have we helped students to feel successful um, and allowed them the space to do it? Because those are some really amazing points that have been brought up here that I just want us to be able to close in on. Yeah, so looking, I was a student very recently. I only graduated college in the spring. And looking back, if, Melissa, since I work with you now and I've seen your class, if I had been in your class when I was in going through Roxbury, I would have been a completely different student. My grades would not have reflected my actual <laughs> abilities because it back in the day, I say that being young, we math class wasn't really fun. I, I was naturally a math person, but I was never told that because I was never invested. I never had fun. Math class was almost nap time for me, even though I was really good at it. So if I had had that fun in math, I would have been a completely different person, especially in the classroom. I would have been totally different. And I love incorporating that fun. I love incorporating that activity with the students. I'm a very mobile, a very active person. I cannot sit still for the life of me. And being able to do that in the classroom and have these kids also do that, they're kids, they're young, they have tons of energy. Letting them get that energy out in math class, it brings such an incredible level of engagement to the math class. And I love exactly what we do. And I notice such a difference in our students' performance through it. So bringing fun in, I'm all for it. So um, using the thin slicing, um, it does get progressively harder. And there are definitely times when students have a productive struggle where their group is trying to figure out, you know, how do I, uh, you know, get past this? And they're able to kind of take hints from other groups um, and kind of connect the pieces so that they're able to um, move on to that next level of difficulty um, for the question. I've seen um, the excitement from the students. Um, one of the biggest ways is it almost turns into a competition of have I gotten to that spicy level question and have I been able to, um, you know, like complete this set of questions before any of the other groups. Um, so I think that that's one of the things that the students have been excited about. And like Melissa, I've seen um, students doing stuff that is far beyond algebra level, um, that had it been a teacher directed lesson, um, like we've done in the past, they never would have been presented that material in that way. Um, and they were able to come up with it themselves, which is exciting to see. And I would say in my classroom, it's it's come into a competition where we don't want the beginning of the lesson to be a competition, but you get students that look around the room and maybe also get ideas from other groups rather than just, you know, copying off of it. So I think that there is um, sharing going on amongst the kids in the class that they don't realize when they look around. The other term that I hear or the phrase I hear a lot in my class is, wow, that went really fast. I can't believe how fast math class went. Now, I, that's such a change from when I was younger too. So I've been teaching the last 11 years and I graduated a little while more than Mike did, but you know, so I just find that it's more engaging and the students are leaving there with more smiles on their faces rather than doom and gloom as some of us can probably relate to in our time in math class. All right, so students um, bring us home here. I think that you know, your teachers are describing something that's a really, really engaging and fun. I mean, that, I, I hate to keep using those words, but it's something that, I think we're, we work hard as educators to build in, to recognize that that helps students feel more successful. So um, 
here's the question I'm going to pose to you guys so you can have the last thoughts here on this, which is if you were to, if a teacher came to you and said, hey, I heard you on the podcast and I really want to try and design that in my classroom, why should I do it? How could I, how could I, what would be my first step? Give some advice to educators out there about how they could help use these strategies to instigate the desire to learn as your teacher has done with you. Um, I feel that like teachers should incorporate more groups because like I would tell them that they should, I would tell them that they should like it. I don't really know how to like phrase it, but like you should like as if you work as a group, it makes your students like sometimes they'll be put with their friend or something and they'll be able to have fun while also still learning. And a teacher can like come in and they can still help their student. It's just so that like sometimes teachers don't want to see students with like frowns on their face. So being able to like work in groups like can make a kid smile and that might make a teacher happy. I think it definitely would make a teacher happy. All right. I like that. Thanks, Michaela. Go ahead, Roy. Uh, teachers should start using all these like different activities because I feel, and I'm pretty sh I'm sure other students feel the same way that they would 100% rather do, th do this instead of working on, on an IXL because I don't think anyone likes IXL to be honest. But if they, I'm pretty sure like if they start using all these different activities, other students will definitely want to be in that class more and actually be happy going into math instead of waiting until class is over and not paying attention. So, you know, um, it, it, it's honestly made um, math way better for me. All right, awesome. So I think that the, the teacher's hope is when, is that this classroom experience sets you up so you can be successful while working independently on things like IXL. I think the, the, the reality is too much of something like that definitely gets um, arduous and really challenging. So I really appreciate everyone being here. Um, I'm super delighted to, to see this, this shift in philosophy. Uh, the energy at EMS in math in particular is fantastic. I know the teachers are doing really hard work to make the, the, the math classrooms exciting and interesting, fun for kids, shifting away from a very traditional approach. And I commend them for their commitment to that work because it is much, much harder than I think anyone can probably appreciate unless you're in the midst of it. I want to thank Jeff Fashina, who's the supervisor, for bringing uh, this strategy to the teachers and providing lots of support. I mean, he has he's in classrooms um, providing training. Um, he's bringing trainers in. So there's a lot of support. And I think one of the things that have helped make this successful is there's the space where we know that we, it may not be successful right out of the gate, and that's okay. It's okay to take a risk. It's okay to try something. You know, the healthy risk is a good risk, right? Something where you know that there's support there, that there's going to be acceptance and an ability to grow, which is the same thing we hope to build for students. So I'm Chuck Seip, Assistant Superintendent here in Roxbury. I could not be more proud of the effort that these students and educators are making to ensure that math learning is engaging and exciting. Uh, thanks for listening. And we will certainly have many more conversations about this structure in math class. Have a great day.